Hello, and welcome to the first chapter reading of The Lost Tribe, Book 1, The Traveler. I am your humble author and narrator, Peter Ivey. This week I will be reading the prologue and first chapter. If you enjoy it, please like and subscribe. If you are interested in physical copies, the books are all available on Amazon. Yes, I'm pimping myself, and, well, that's what we do. Thank you, and let's dive right in. Before. The hard metal strikes of Apostolos' boots resounded in the halls surrounding the palace as he raced across the white alabaster floors. Through the large gabled windows between the sets of pillars, he could see the swirling sky above the palace itself, and the doom-laden dark orb that hung there, drawing swirls of dark energy around it in ever-tightening rings, as if it was drawing in power and turning it into... something else. He drew the sword given to him by Father, a blade blessed by the breath of the lion itself, Father's personal touch. He raised the blade to his chest to do battle. The lessons of millennia rang fresh and true in his head as he approached the doors that led to the chapel. Loyalty, faith, trust, the bond of the shepherds, as it was in the beginning, so shall endure for all time. A crack appeared in the floor along the hall, and violently swept across the width of the floor until it met the pillars. One of them collapsed, and Apostos dove over the debris as it fell across his path. A lion's head, mob broken off and crumbled, rolled to a stop behind him. He spared a glance, blinked, and gritted his teeth. This is not the end. There is no end. Apostle slept forward, crashing through the iron doors. His heavy breastplate saved him from most of the impact, but he still stumbled to, onto his knees. He drove the sword into the chapel floor to save himself from collapsing entirely, and then he rose to his feet. Welcome, brother. The chapel was not like the ones that humans made. Rows upon rows of human benches, facing an altar where a priest led the worshippers in prayer. This chapel was a domed basilica that housed the doorways that led to the worlds, each one an archway with a lion's head crown through which each shepherd passed every day. There were three other doors. One led to the barracks, one led to the archives, where apostles such as come from, and the largest and most elaborate led to the throne itself. In front of that most important of doors, standing in the shadows, was the commander of all the shepherds. He stepped from the shadows into the light, his dark hair ran along down his back, over his gilded armor, and his eyes were dark and angry. There were cracks and pitted marks all over his armor, and small lines of black fluid ran from a ruined lion's maw over the once white tabard. In his hands he held the symbol of his rule, a two-handed steel mace. It was also strangely eroded. Have you come to speak to our father like a good little shepherd? Apostos lowered his sword and walked towards him. What happened to you? What happened to me? I am the first and most loved of all of us. You come crashing into the most sacred place, your righteous blade drawn to do battle. And you dare ask what happened to me? He smiled and black spittle ran through his teeth and over his lips. You could call it evolution, he said. Or perhaps simply a message. Where is father? Gone. He ran when I came back, Apostos. He's gone. You lie. You would not turn his back on us. He raised his weapon and pointed it at Apostos. It seems you need to be convinced. He attacked with the heavy weapon, driving the mace in a downward swing that Apostos barely was able to stop. It rang against the sword, sending waves of shock down his arms. Apostos leapt back and drove in with his sword, trying to disarm his opponent. The mace came crashing onto his side, sending Apostos tumbling into one of the archways. 
He got his arm up in time to take most of the blow. His forearm guard sizzled and spots of black began appearing on the surface. He tore at the guard and threw it across the floor. His opponent walked towards him with calm, measured strides. I am surprised that you came on your own, Apostos. I did not think you capable of such courage. Neither did Lyconis. You will pay for this! His opponent raised his mace in both hands and grinned like a maniac. Do not worry, Apostos. I will end your suffering! A bolt of energy, a deep radiant emerald in shade, crashed into Apostos' opponent, driving him to the floor and burning his body. Apostles' brothers in arms, three of his fellow shepherds, came into the chapel. The golden child called Sibelius in the lead. The hulking form of the noble Noxos and the stern and measured warrior Pentelus walked at his heels. Pentelus reached down and hauled Apostles to his feet. Let us finish with this traitor, brother, Pentelus murmured. Father has spoken, we are to do his will by destroying this menace. Take my hand, Apostos, Sibelius said, reaching out for him. Father has given us the power to invoke his wrath. The charring body of the traitor let loose with a howl of laughter. Apostos stared at the traitor, hatred filling his vision, and took Sibelius' hand. A bolt of crackling energy ran up his arm and filled his being. He let go and walked over to the traitor, his sword firmly in his grasp again. The traitor smiled as he looked up at Apostos. Only you knew what I know, Apostos. His lies... Without hesitation, Apostos buried his blade deep into the chest of the traitor. I know all I need to, Apostos said. The energy filled the blade and bathed the traitor in waves of green fire. The grin remained on his face, even as he screamed in undeniable agony. It unsettled Apostos, and something stirred at the core of his being. Apostos stifled whatever it was and let the traitor burn. I was not alone, brother. He whispered. The life left his eyes. What did he mean? Apostos shouted at Sibelius and the others. Sibelius seemed about to answer when the screams and sounds of battle arose from behind the door to the barracks. Apostos left the sword buried in the traitor's chest as he ran towards the sound of destruction, his hands filling with burning energy. His brothers followed. The old man rolled up the cuffs of his pants and walked across the sand of the beach. His large white shirt flapped in the light breeze in an afternoon unseen by history. He lifted his large white-haired head to the breeze and exhaled with a good deal of satisfaction, a smile on his creased and ancient face. He continued across the sand and on to a flat granite plain run through the trickles of seawater. Here and there, sea creatures abruptly removed from their home flapped and floundered on the rocks. He smiled at them as well. He was well pleased with himself. He bent over and began to study something in the rock. His fingers traced a large fossil he found there, and he continued to run one digit along the length of it, tenderly. He blinked tears from his eyes and straightened up from his devotions. A shadow had appeared along his, draped across the rock. Father, a voice said. The old man pointed at the surface where the fossil lay. Do you see the bones of the Salatri, Apostos? Yes, father, Apostos said. I see them. Their time was not so long ago as those who would count would reckon, he said, bending down to look at a fossil again. It is not easy to start again, my son. I know. It is not, Apostos agreed. The old man turned to look upon the other. 
Apostos was a young man in appearance, and was dressed in a simple white robe that stopped short below his knees. His long blonde hair fell about his shoulders, and blew slightly in the wind as he stood upon the rock. His face looked wan, wasted, and there were creases in it that were not there before. The old man stepped over to him and gently clasped his right cheek. Apostos' chin seemed to slump in his grasp, sorrow etched into his brow. His blue eyes were distant and haunted. Apostos took his hand and held it, but did not move it from where it lay on his cheek. We have done all you asked, father, he said, his voice faltering. I am so weary. I know, Apostos, I know, the old man said. Are the vessels in place? Yes, they are in place, he said. I... Apostos, what is it? The old man lifted Apostos' face so he could see him better. The loss hurts you deeply, he said, not asking, as he knew full well that it did. I understand that what you did must have been very difficult, but you must not sorrow so. What you and your brothers did for me has saved so many, and so much. You saved yourselves as well, Apostos, and I am grateful that you and your brothers remain with me. It is not the act that hurts so much, father, Apostos said, stepping away but not knowing why it all happened to begin with. What happened to them? Apostos faltered. The old man walked over quickly and embraced him. Apostos's arms hung at his side. You need not worry, Apostos, he said, for it will never happen again. We have seen to it that it does not, haven't we? Can you not place your faith in me and the plan I have for all of us? Of course, father, he replied, breaking the embrace but not stepping away. The old man smiled again and rested his hand upon Apostos' shoulder. That is good, son, he said. Summon your brothers. I have a new purpose for each of you. Apostos nodded and was gone. The waters began to flow again over the rock, gathering about father's feet, and soon up to his ankles. Father waited around for a moment, the pure joy of the frothing and bubbling of the seawater amusing him in its simplicity of sensation. He knelt down and drifted his hand through the water, feeling the flow. Everything would be fine now, as I have willed it to be. Hmm. He rose quickly and looked around, blinking. He opened up his senses to all things, looking far, wide, and deep. For a moment a cloud had been in the sky, or perhaps the shadow of a cloud. In the first time in the reckoning of the multitude, the infinitude of history had fashioned. Father did not know a thing. He frowned and disappeared. The beach was empty, save for a shadow that fell onto the waters. Chapter 1 My world has been gripped by a war over resources that had begun years before I was born, after the ice caps melted and the earth turned into a bunch of island states scrambling for whatever was left and trying to survive in a world turned upside down. To me, it was all I'd ever known. My grandfather and my father were sailors, so I thought it was natural for me to join up when I was 16 and join on the tradition. It was a hell of a lot better than killing time in pretty, the little fishing village where I was born. 
Our nation, Avalon, had been part of a much bigger empire once, but now it was all shattered. My mother and sister stayed behind to live in peace there, but I couldn't. I joined up with a boarding skiff called the Golden Maria and took my chances on the seas. We were all from some little village or another, a bunch of young men who washed the seas with both wonder and fear, creeping below decks during the evenings for dice and cheap brandy. My captain, a rough man by the name of Gerardin, realized early on that I had a talent for hand-to-hand fighting on account of how often I came up on the winning side of the brawls that would erupt on a night with no action when the tempers ran high below the decks. After a few skirmishes with the Hang Fleet, a nation that also laid claim to the same salvage rights as us, Gerardin saw that I could take care of myself in a fight and maybe a sergeant of a squad of men, a boarding party. I was thrilled with the idea, especially since I got another ration of brandy. That being said, command was not my first choice in my career. I'd always been on my own, comfortable in my role, and I hated the idea of being responsible for anyone else's life. We had all served together anyway, so it made it easy for us to get along. We were all in the same boat. My beard is short, trimmed close like my hair, which I kept short as tradition dictated. I wore the fatigues and storm jacket of a sergeant. I never liked the storm jacket. They often got in the way in a fight, but it was tradition. Firearms had not been readily available to us, as they were not very reliable and prone to mishaps, so we possessed a saber and dagger for weapons when we went on missions to board a ship or scuttle one. My squad was holed up in the forward's port section of the Maria, drinking and playing cards, when someone shouted up above that a hang vessel had been sighted in the distance. I had been trying to fix a pocket wash that one of my fellow sergeants' mirrors had lost me the night before playing poker, when everyone started shouting for quiet as the sentries called out above. I quickly tucked the watch into my jacket and grabbed my belt and scabbard off my hook. We all started to get up and get organized. It was really close below the decks, and I was glad to have an excuse to get above. Mears and two other sergeants, Valtis and Braden, made their way over to where I was getting ready. You think we've got something worth getting dressed up in all this heat? Valtis asked me, mopping his forehead with a rag. I don't know, Randall, but it's something anyway, I replied. At least it'll mean that we'll be fighting someone besides ourselves today. You're lucky, Mickey, Mir said, poking me in the chest. Your first squad on deck this time around. Hey, 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 now, just because one of your best pieces of loot is in my pocket doesn't mean you have to be bitter, George, I said, holding my hands up. If you'd like to wager on who gets the most hanks today, I'll gladly put it up for stake. Mir's face reddened and he put out his hand and we shook on it. See you above, Mickey. He said, then turned to make his way up the galley. We assembled shortly on the port deck. The Maria had one deck on each side for securing boarding parties, and two masts in the middle with a raised bridge where the captain could direct and order the attack. Each boarding deck had five group of ten iron rings bolted down for the men to hold on to when we made a sharp turn in an attack run. The Maria became swooping doom at that moment, a hawk barreling down to drop its bloodthirsty pastures on any prey worthy of our attention. It was with my squad on the foredeck when we got a good look at the hang vessel. It was similar to our vessel, designed for speed rather than firepower, although it did have a number of arbalest emplacements on the foredeck that we'd have to watch out for. I pointed them out to my men and yelled down the line. The hull was dark, trimmed red, and the main mast flew a white sail with the jade dragon of the hang. A moment later, as we pointed and speculated, the order came to secure ourselves. I reached down and grabbed a ring, ordering my men to do so as well. They all knew the drill, but I had to be sure. The Maria then lurched and began to cut through the waves as we turned towards the vessel. Through the spray, I could see us gaining on our enemy. 
The sky began to darken as we approached her, and several of the men swore an oath as heavy droplets began to hit the deck. It was treacherous enough getting onto one craft from another, but the rain made the deck slick enough to make us go tumbling overboard if we weren't careful. The captain called out for the steersman to trim our course, and I felt the deck tilt as the Maria leaned in towards the enemy vessel. This was going to be the tricky bit, because we were now heading at full speed right at her, and we'd have to pull up real fine to avoid slamming into her. I gave the order to my squad to pull sabers, and I watched the blades flash in the dying light, my men stealing themselves as we moved in. Then the shouting began, and I realized we cut it far too fine. The Marie was going to slam its port side on the other ship hard! Captain Jaredin yelled a brace for the impact. I watched with dread fascination as the other hull loomed ever closer, and my eyes met with the gaze of a sailor on that ship as he came to the same conclusion. We were both afraid for our lives. We knew that death was coming! In a matter of seconds, the Maria slid up to the ship and slammed into it, the hulls buckling like rams. I heard several hard ring sounds like metal striking metal and watched in horror as a number of our men went tumbling over the deck, their rungs busted by the impact. I jumped, sliding across the deck to the rail to grab one of my own men. Too late! The decks rebounded and he, along with many others, went down between the hulls. I couldn't turn away. In seconds, the hulls came together again, crushing them without intention or notice. It was a horrible way to die. I had half a mind go up onto the bridge and clap the steersman upside the head, but I had a job to do, fully mustered or not. I screamed to the rest of my men and leapt over the rails into the deck of the other ship, my saber drawn and my rage put to better use. I landed close, inside the railings of rigging, and drove my saber at a young sailor who was charging up onto the hold, brandishing a two-pronged spear. He blocked my assault, and I moved into close with him. There were others behind him. I could see them in the dim light of a lantern hanging over the stairs. I spared a glance over my shoulder to see how my boys were doing. Five were behind me, another half, were do another half a dozen were scrambling over with Mears and Braden. They were both directing their squads up to the bridge, trying to cut their way through a hearty group of soldiers. It bothered me that we had no idea how many men were still below the decks. Not wanting to waver, I pressed my luck with my opponent, calling for my men to join me. I pulled my dagger and threw it at the sailor who confronted me, and it struck home in his throat. He tumbled backwards, his comrades finding their path blocked by his flailing, soon-to-be corpse as he struggled in vain, clutching at his throat. A couple of the enemy crew, seeing that I had trapped their men, came charging at us with bludgeons and axes. I had to hand to them, it was a brave display. I damned their luck, though, as one of the, my men went down with a fractured skull. Another dismembered by an axe that left him bloody on the deck. I leapt over them to get between my men and the mob, barely avoiding being chopped down myself. I snatched a dagger for one of my wounded men and drove into the belly of one of the charging crew. He went down at my feet, and I stepped on him, vaulting over to kick another man in the gut while driving my saber into another. I could feel myself getting worked up, the fear of failing as a leader driving me into frenzy. I killed another, skewering through the chest. He went down to the deck but took my saber with him. It was then that I realized that my men were being routed by the sailors coming up from below. They had cleared their comrade out of the way and had separated me from my men. I was now unarmed and about to be swarmed by a mob of angry foes. They moved in cautiously, seeing the bodies of their fellow crewmen lying in a heap at my feet. Their faces swam in a whirl as they found their nerve and started laughing and shouting. They could smell my blood. A club missed my head and a spear barely missed my calf as I dodged and wove as best as I could. Finally, they maneuvered me up to the other side of the ship away from Maria and I was knocked back onto the railing. I lost my footing and fell to the deck. I flailed madly, but a spear went down through my jacket and pinned me to the deck. I tried to roll away, 
cursing the damn jacket as it held me down. I only succeeded in ripping it, which gave it a little bit more room to move. I wasn't free yet. I could see a sword lying on the deck a few feet away through the scramble of feet. My foes were eager to put an end to me. Damn them! I reached for the sword anyway, and it felt like it was a mile away. I felt the presence above me then, and I spared a glance upward to see one of the sailors had moved in to chop me down with an axe. I saw it coming, and I screamed in defiance as a whistle downward. Ah! Then I found that I had a sword in each hand, one of theirs and one of ours. I deflected the blow with the axe with the crux made by the two axes. The axe-wielding sailor stepped back from me, nearly dropping the weapon, his face aghast. He was gibbering in fear, calling to his crewmates. I could feel that something had changed radically for me. Something fundamental inside me. My body felt invigorated. My weariness and frantic nerves calmed. My mind very clear. I was, I was new and different. There was a joy rising up in me like a sun, a fire burning in every drop of my blood. I leapt up onto the deck and shrugged my jacket off. I watched as everyone on the deck was backing away. As the rain began to fall in heavy drops, I could see where they were scared. In the sheen of the deck, in a mix of blood, oil, and water, my eyes shone like a pair of bright green fires. It was me! My eyes! My mind whirled! For a moment I considered the possibility that I was knocked out somewhere or dead. I was a boy from pretty, a son and a sailor, not some demon born of hailfire that shone ghastly green. What am I? The strength that I felt in my arms, the vigor in my heart, and the weapons that suddenly came to my hand. How was it possible? If this was a dream, I know that I did not want to wake from it, and if I was drunk in some hole in pretty seedier quarter, then I hope no one broke into my stupor. I looked around at the men running from me, and the sudden sense of distance in my mind from their humanity disturbed me. Such cowards they now seemed. It galled me to see them run, and before I realized it, I was running at them with weapons raised. Roaring a battle cry! wrenched from my contempt for their sorry state. The effect was immediate and indelibly etched in my mind. Even my own crewmen began to run ahead of my enemies as I caught up with those would-be murderers. They fell like slaughtered animals, but I could not pity them their fate. Two were run through before they could turn to meet me. Another beheaded as he stopped to gawk at the death of his comrades. I spared not a breath and killed three more in succession as they fled. Mears was herding our men off to the boat and onto the Maria, screaming and pointing at me as he did so. He looked so lost at that moment. I met his gaze, and I knew then that our lots in life were now very different. As I charged again, several of my enemies dove over the side to escape me, or were run through as they attempted to bully their way onto the Maria. Very soon, between those who had fled and those who were dead, I found myself alone on the deck. I cried out in frustration at their cowardice, moving my saber and arc, taking it all in my view, challenging them to stand in my way. At that moment I could see myself in their eyes. I was ashamed at my hatred, my outright loathing for even my own men, let alone these poor hapless fools my enemy. Who was I to judge? I was Mick, just a sailor like them. How could I kill them with such glee? Something was wrong in the midst of all that I was. I dropped the blades on the deck and felt overwhelmed by loathing of a more personal sort. Then as I stood there, the world decided to go quite mad. Up to that point, I'd only really been confined to looking at the world through my narrow little one-reality perception. Standing on that ship, I saw something else. Gossamer impressions of other men aboard other ships, involved in battles or just crossing the ocean. They started to appear around me, all varying sizes and depictions overlapping and intertwining layer by layer it was staggering i knew in my heart that they were all real as real 
as where I stood. But no one should perceive it like this. It was maddening. The image came in a rush, and I felt as if a door had opened in my head, and a breeze was flowing through for some conception of myself that I had never known. What I did know was that I could never go back from this point. How could anyone? To realize the grand scale of all creation, to know we live in one permutation of a single solid base of a molded to fit a number of interpretations, it was impossible not to feel very, very small. At the same time, I also felt like I was intruding upon a vista reserved for only the author of creation itself. I had peeked behind the curtain, but instead of spoiling the show, this revelation made it all the more marvelous. In myself, I could also feel the change. All the phantom images of the other place disappeared very suddenly, as if the curtain was pulled back abruptly. The green light returned full force in my eyes. I felt a surge of energy throughout my body, and a sense of something familiar came with it. It was half-remembered, like a natural gift or talent, something intuitive, instead of learned. I walked over to the edge of the deck and leaned over the railing. The world had begun to change here over the water. I knew it to be a result of whatever this force was that was working in me. I held my hands over the surface of the water and began to concentrate. Slowly, the water stilled, became a mirror, and went dark. This felt natural somehow. At the edge of the effect began to dance with green flames. A great wind exhaled from the effect, and I could see vague impressions of gray stone and fog. It was a different interpretation, a different place entirely. There was land in this world, maybe a city or a village. I could feel the difference in temperature drop already as the damp chill from the stone reached me here. How marvelous indeed! I stood on the edge of the door, looking in. It was time, I felt, to leave. Another world beckons. I smiled, looking back at the Maria and her frightened crew, those who I had served, and looked at me now with mixed impressions of shock, wonderment, and fear. I did not belong here. I stepped up onto the rail and leaned over the opening I had made. I held up my arms. One part remained, a benediction that I felt was key to the crossing. I spoke these words, learned at my grandfather's knee from his time as a sailor, but I reworked them for my own use in this instant. Open this door to the winding path. Light the way where I wish to roam. Across the sea of infinity for this weary traveler far from home. I stepped forward, folding my arms, and fell into the opening. The world disappeared of rushing of water. That was not water. The invisible parted to greet me. Then my confidence faltered. There was something more, something I had not seen. I began to panic as the darkness yawned widely to swallow me! Thank you for joining us this week. Next week, Chapter 2. Stay tuned.